Well, good morning, everyone. Oh, come on. You just heard a great message about being eternally secure, and maybe it wasn't the zippiest song you've ever sung, but nonetheless, let's try that one more time. Good morning, everyone. As I frequently say, please assure me that you're awake at at least the start of my message. Whether you're going to be awake in 40 minutes from now is completely up to you, but um, it gives me some reassurance that there's no one bobbing for apples just as I begin um, to speak. It's wonderful to be with you. It's nice to see uh, the overflow room overflowing, and uh, it's a privilege to be back with you. Let's turn right back in our Bibles, please. We'll read some of the same verses we read last night in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. As we're turning there, we'll quickly remind ourselves of what we're looking at. I know some of you were not able to be here last night, so we'll bring you right up to speed. We've decided to think a little bit together about deserts. I had, uh, in preparation for this conference, and I don't know if Brother Joe has the same experience, but uh, sometimes the Lord gives you pretty clear direction and you know what topic you're going to cover. Other times, uh, you just prepare a few things and, and let the Lord guide you. So I had, I had narrowed it down to three things. So let me tell you about the other two so you can research them and maybe you'll hear me give them at another conference or Yosemite someday. Option number two was things that God revealed to women in the scriptures before he revealed them to men. And that wasn't just to get brownie points with the women. I came across that once when I, it really sort of dawned on me that Hannah understood that God was going to introduce kingship before it was revealed to really anybody else. And I thought, it's fascinating. Fascinating how in the solitude of her heart, the Lord revealed to her, and we'll come back to this concept later when we talk about the beautiful connection between intimacy and revelation. But here is a woman who is deeply intimate with God and the Lord gave her a deep revelation. Well, that was justification enough for me to try and see if there was maybe another one like that. Well, I found at least six, and I'm sure you can find more. Whether it was the virgin birth, or even what was revealed to Eve in the garden, there are things that the Lord revealed to women before men. So it's really an interesting study. The third option was the expression, lifting up one's eyes to look and see something. We had recently had a brother give a message in, in Arizona, sharing us a little bit about the, the interaction, of course, between Lot and Abraham and how Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the well-watered plain of Jordan. And he liked what he saw, and he went after it and landed in Sodom. And then the Lord came along to Abraham and said, Now lift up your eyes, and showed him a whole lot more than Sodom. Made him look north, east, south, and west, and gave him everything. And you might want to find that expression a few other times, even of the Lord Jesus himself. But those were the consolation prizes. The winner, as it were, was to study the concept of deserts. Living in a desert, I felt qualified to do so. Knowing that, as I said last night, the cactus is a very noble plant, I wanted to think about the scriptural references to deserts. And we focused our thinking a little bit. We talked about the principle of deserts last night, but we want to think primarily of the use of deserts in the wilderness in the New Testament. It referred to 348 times. That's a lot. Last night, we talked about three, if you will, characteristics of a desert. Number one, that deserts are desolate, meaning they're not the place you would naturally live. And yet, God makes us have a habitation in a desert. 
he makes the desert place, the place flowing with rivers of living water. Secondly, we saw that the deserts were dangerous. My little example of how my hand, unfortunately, was uh, rather intertwined with a jumping choya, for those who know what those are. It's a dangerous place. We see that in the scripture, a place where people were robbed, where people were hurt, where animals could damage individuals. And yet, in the midst of that danger, the Lord provides safety. And thirdly, we saw the deserts, no surprise, were dry. This is my cue to have a little sip of my Joe water here. The deserts were dry places, places where you wouldn't expect to find nourishment and food. And yet, as we'll study a little bit more this weekend, it strikes me in an amazing way how the Lord seems to feed people more so in the deserts than he ever did in the cities. So this concept of desert, we wanted to look at New Testament examples or New Testament situations in which the geography of the desert was relevant. Understanding the overall principle my, my thesis, if you will, that God is going to use everything in his power, even the geography of the planet, to teach us about himself. I know with some of you, we've done studies before in Bible geography, and it's always uh, amazing to me how the Lord gives us these extra and beautiful details. And they're not just filler. When the, when the scripture tells you about where something happens, don't think of that as just an extra tidbit of information to fill in the pages. The Lord could have given us a pretty large Bible when you think about it. He's given us a very small book, frankly. You know, sometimes it might feel like it's a ginormous book, and in some ways it is, of course. But it's really not that long. You could read the book in about 60 hours, and that's not reading very quickly. I time myself. In 60 hours, you can read the, the, the Bible, 45 hours roughly for the Old Testament and 15 for the New. No one in this room can convince me that you don't have 60 hours a year to read through your Bibles. I'm sorry. Come, coming from someone who's partially busy, I know what time is like. And that's not to praise me or anyone else. But we'll be talking a lot about time over the course of the weekend. But you are, in many respects, and you might not think you are, but you are more so than you think the master of the destiny of your time. The Lord gives resources in different ways to different people and spiritual gifts to different ways and different people. But in many ways, the common element, at least for today, is time. Some people are given a long life, some people a short life. How are you using the time that God's given you? And so, uh, getting us a little bit off track, nonetheless, of course, uh, but we have a defined period of time. You can read through, as I say, your Bible in 60 hours, 10 to 12 minutes a day. That's just continuously reading, but you can uh, uh, read. And so, as, as we come to, to find the details of Scripture, things like geography are not unimportant details. They're there for a reason. There are events that you might never have connected together, but it just so happens that they happened at the same place. That's a great and wonderful study to pursue. So the next time you're just reading through your Bible or doing your Bible study, take note of where events occur. We'll make mention of a few of them. There are some beautiful lessons that can be learned about simply where it happened. And as even we mentioned last night, the directions in which people travel is very important. When that man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and there's, 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 there's a point in that. 
That was the path that one would take if you were planning to head north. Well, if I was going to head north from Jerusalem, don't look at your maps now, but if I was planning to head north from Jerusalem, why wouldn't I just go due north, right? Don't we just take the path of least resistance? Well, the problem is if you, if you want to go due north out of Jerusalem to go up to Galilee, for example, you'd have to go through Samaria, and we don't like those Samaritans. So I think we should avoid Samaria. So here's a man. May well have been trying to avoid the Samaritans. But what happens to him? beaten up, left half dead at the side of the road. And who comes to his rescue? Samaritan. With his ancient ambulance. In the business of rescuing people. I mean, this wasn't any typical Samaritan. This Samaritan had a tab already running at the, at the inn, walking around helping people. I wonder if you know anyone else who is trying to avoid the very person who could help them, found themselves half dead at the side of the road, and the Samaritan came and rescued them. The Lord Jesus is the good Samaritan, isn't he? The one who comes and rescues us, carries us home. Marvelous. You know, you might not have appreciated the depth of that, st of that story had you not even just got the basic geography of the land of promise. Fantastic, isn't it? So hopefully Lord can teach us something about deserts, because they're everywhere. The deserts are prolific in the scripture, as we said last night. But for these subsequent three messages, what we'd like to do is, or what I'd like to do is, um, think about nine, if you will, features of the desert, or things that happen, if you will, in the desert, in the New Testament. Nine different things that are relevant to each of us, I hope, and we'll try and tackle three of them at each of the meetings. We'll see how our time goes. I do have some concluding thoughts about gardens, just to balance the desert. You know, I went for a lovely run this morning up here in Claremont and ran, um, I guess it's Mountain Road, right to the top of the mountain. Suffice to say, I was a little short of breath when I got to the top, but um, it's nice to run the hills here because you see a lot of green. I don't quite see that much green when I'm in Arizona. And um, I saw beautiful gardens, and I thought, well, these poor folks will be so dry at the end of my, it'd be a dry message. At the end of my message, well, that was a joke, by the way. <laughs> Tough crowd here, Joe. Um, but uh, we might be able to balance things at the end of our message tomorrow and talking a little about the significance of gardens in the Word of God, because there are many of them. But the three features we'd like to look at this morning are as follows. I want you to think of deserts as a place of solitude, of separation, and revelation. Solitude, separation, and revelation. Let's read here in Mark 6, where we are, uh, chapter 6, verse 30. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both <clears throat> what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And then this is the verse I want us to note for this first feature of a desert. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. This is one example of many. I will suggest to you this morning that the desert is a place of solitude. I'd mentioned last night that a lot of 
characters, if not all the major characters that we read of in the scripture, that's not to say the minor characters aren't important, but we think of the major characters that we know of scripture, whether it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, in the, old, in the uh, early part of the Old Testament, or coming further to Elijah, or Jeremiah, or Daniel, <clears throat> literally every one of them, <clears throat> we find having experiences in the desert. Furthermore, if I can refine it a little bit deeper, Note that almost all of them have an experience in the desert alone. Alone. In fact, I'm fascinated, <coughs> excuse me, I'm fascinated in the scriptures at how often people are alone. In particular, alone, if you will, with God. We see this repeatedly. And, you know, we live in a day, and there's nothing wrong with it, uh, where it's kind of hard in some ways to be alone, in the sense that we're always plugged in. We're always connected. Do you have Wi-Fi here? You know, everywhere we go, we've got to be connected. We got, I have uh, more ways for the nurses and the doctors of the hospital to reach me than I will uh, ever confess. My, one of my evaluations came in the other day, and one of our fellows, I think a little bit tongue-in-cheek, wrote a note about Dr. McHale, said, uh, one of the things we like about Dr. McHale is it does not matter what continent he is on, we still are able to find him. Now, I don't know if I'll take that as a compliment or as, or as a negative thing. I do travel a lot. I'm one of these crazy travelers. I'll go fly to China for a day, give a talk, and come back the next day. But I always, I'm always plugged in. I'm always accessible and available. And sometimes we, we, we love that in one sense, that we like to be connected to our surroundings. I'm not as prolific on Facebook or whatever else that people use as their social media but there's some people on whom it just, I mean, you take Facebook away from them for 30 or 40 seconds and they start to seize, you know? And that might be a good thing in some respect. But in other respect, it may rob us of the importance of solitude and being alone with God. Let me ask you in a very simple way. <clears throat> if you had to keep a log of your time Let's take the last 24 hours, be liberal. Let's take the last 48 hours. How much time could you argue effectively that you were alone with God? Now, one could argue, well, God is with me everywhere, and thank the Lord for that. I, we've, we've heard, it's not a question of me holding his hand, he's holding mine, he's holding me. And I'm so grateful for that. But pragmatically, how much time have you spent alone with the Lord in the last two days? Now, it doesn't say how much time you were praying or, sometime, or how much time you read your Bible. Those are very obvious manifestations of being alone with God. But what of just the connectedness that you have with the Lord, if I can use a modern-day word, fellowship that we were hearing about, enjoying the relationship that you have, thinking about him, meditating on him, enjoying his company? You know what it's like to enjoy the company of someone you like? Just being in the same room gives you the butterflies. You get that same sense with the Lord. We could look at many, many examples in Scripture of people who were alone with God. Abraham. When I think of Abraham and his solitude, I think of fellowship. Here was a man who enjoyed the company of God's people. Say, even in contrast to Lot, you know, uh, we say 
two angels went to visit Lot and three went to visit Abraham. Well, is there a big difference between two and three? Surely. When the third angel is the Lord Jesus, it's a pretty big difference between two and three. In fact, if you want to study geography, study the fact that Abraham settled himself in a place called Hebron, which actually literally means joining, togetherness, or fellowship. Most times you read about the geographical place of Hebron, you're going to read about fellowship. Abraham enjoyed fellowship with God. How is your fellowship with God? How is your enjoying of that relationship? Again, I'm not formally asking you to count the number of minutes you were reading or praying per se, because it's more than that. Although obviously those are imperative. Are you going to the desert to enjoy the solitude of the Lord? Are you so busy in the activity, and sometimes good activity, we'll be talking about this later, you know, the, the Lord, when he pulled his disciples, at times he pulled them away from legitimate spiritual activity for a period of rest. But are you going to spend time alone with the Lord to enjoy his fellowship? You could think of Jacob. Jacob, if you follow his life closely, I'm fascinated by Jacob, by the way. Jacob is a very unusual character in the scripture. Um, Jacob, in perhaps the right sense of the word, is a tremendous lover, isn't he? He demonstrates love in ways that other people don't. I don't know if any other person in the Bible we could consider as an example or a type, if you will, of God the Father's love for the Son as well as God the Son's love for the church. We see both of those elements in Jacob. Not very many people carry that depth of love. One of the things about Jacob, of course, is Jacob really did not like being alone. You notice that about him? I mean, he did not, well, he's a mama's boy. He didn't, he didn't like being off on his own. You know, his brother's out hunting and he's cooking lentils. Right? No disrespect to lentils, but because um, I, I like them, for the record. Um, my mom makes this great lentil soup in the winter. It's good when it's cold up in northern Canada. But um, Jacob didn't like being alone. And you know what happened in Jacob's life. He lied. He uh, tricked his father into the birthright. I'm not going to go through the whole story. You perhaps know it quite well. And eventually now he's going to meet up with his brother Esau. So he's nervous. I mean, I'd be nervous if my brother was a hunter and I was a cook. And um, I was going to meet him after 20 years of stealing something from him that it was of great value. I mean, I'm not really looking forward to this. So Jacob, pretty smart man, in one way, he starts sending things ahead. You know, he sends gifts. He sends various delegations. And then he sends both his wives in front. Oh, brave man that you are, Jacob, right? But I think God was in that. Because there's that beautiful verse where it says, you can read it in Genesis 35, and Jacob was left alone. Years of challenges in his life. Finally, he was left alone. What happened when he was alone? Well, the Lord Jesus came and met with him. And you know the story of the wrestling of Jacob. and He started wrestling, ultimately was clinging to the Lord. It's one of my favorite stories in the scripture. But when I think of Jacob and his 
solitude or his aloneness, the key theme that comes to my mind is genuine repentance. Now, repentance is not just for salvation. Repentance has a role in the life of the believer too, doesn't it? Notice not so much what the Lord did by wrestling with him. Notice what the Lord said to him. He asked him a question. God asked a question. You probably should search the answer. What was his question? Anybody remember? What is your name? You think the Lord didn't know his name? Of course he did. But Jacob, for all those years, had, if you will, pretended to be Esau. And when his father asked him that question, even when he felt the hairiness and the, the fake hairiness that he had in his arms, you know, as we like to say Esau was hairy, Jacob was smooth. <laughs> he was smooth, all right. But um, he, he lied. He said, I'm not... I'm, I'm Esau, your firstborn. And the Lord came. In the solitude of that night, in the desert, and made Jacob realize who he really was. And Jacob finally confessed, and he said, I'm Jacob. I'm the liar. I'm the one who deceived my father. I am taking responsibility for that. What do you think the Lord does when you do that? Does he sort of rub your face in the dirt a little bit more? Do you think he pushed his, his head into the rock pillow a little bit harder, made him feel a bit more uncomfortable? It's one of the most beautiful stories in the scripture. The Lord said, okay, finally, you've confessed your Jacob. Now let's change your name to Israel, a prince with God. Let me ask you, what are you hiding? What are you lying about? What have you been holding secret? What have you not been willing to be honest with God about? For a day, a week, a month, or maybe 20 years like Jacob. Maybe you need some alone time today in the desert. Maybe you need an open, honest discussion with the Lord. Not with me, not with Joe. Between you and the Lord. In a sense, Jacob had to reconcile with Esau. In a sense, he had to reconcile with his family. And, but he really had to reconcile with God. We need to be open and honest with God. But let me reassure you. If we confess our sins, what is he? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, Jacob wasn't perfect after that night, but his life was different. He might have been limping, but I'll take a limping Israel over a wrestling Jacob any day of the week. And I don't know your life. I'm not trying to per se make you feel guilty. But I want you to look and think, do I need to go to the desert? Do I need to get alone with God? Other people who spent time in the desert we could think of in their solitude would have been uh, David. Maybe the overarching, if the overarching theme for Abraham was fellowship and the overarching theme for Jacob was repentance, for David I would say it was safety. 
Here is a man who is running to the desert for his life, and he was genuinely alone. you got to think, this is the man in whom it says they came out in hundreds, if not thousands, to celebrate the victories of David. He had paparazzi everywhere, you know. He was the one that everyone everyone wanted to be around. He was famous. People love David. It's amazing. It's in a sense a a little bit like life of Jacob in one sense. People fell in love with David. Whether they were out of Saul's family, whether they were the enemy, whether it was the whole of the nation. You see that one by one that people fell in love with David. There he is, alone, hiding in a cave, fearing for his life, out in the wilderness. Thank God the Lord provided him a security. And I don't know if you're running from something or if you feel vulnerable. You feel you're in a desert completely alone. You might say to me, you know, Joe, I've got great friends and family and brothers and sisters in the Lord, and they try to support me the best way I can. They can, but... I still feel alone. Let me assure you that he can be to you what no one else can. I really believe that. I believe that he can be to us what no one else can be. If you've had that experience where you feel desperately alone, I think Billy Graham described it as cosmic loneliness. Imagine being surrounded by six billion people and you still feel alone, you know what that's like, don't you? He can give you the security that the world can't. Those are just a few examples. We could look at so many others. Elijah and Jeremiah. Others who spent time alone in the wilderness. The wilderness was a place where the Lord had an opportunity to meet with people one-on-one. And sometimes when we're alone, the Lord can do more for us than he can in a group. That's not to belittle our conference. Uh, The Lord clearly uh, blesses his people in groups as well. But if you're looking for the whole of your blessing by being at a meeting like this, you're missing out a lot. Your character, your spiritual strength. Now, I I think I can speak for Joe uh, as as well as myself, that we long to build that with you over a conference like this. But that's just a tiny amount of the alone time you need with God to build the character that God wants you to be. D.L. Moody said once, character is what a man is in the dark. You can look spiritual and be spiritual here, and God bless you for that. But it's when you're alone that it counts for you. The place of solitude. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5, please. Luke chapter 5. We mentioned that it's a place of solitude. It's also a place of separation. We may, for time's sake, only be able to look at um, these two this morning, but that's all right. We have plenty of time this afternoon as well. But Luke chapter 5, and uh, let's read for just a little bit of of connection here. Uh, Go up to Uh, Verse 12 of Luke chapter 5. 
And it came to pass, when he was in a certain city, behold, a man full of leprosy, who, seeing Jesus, fell on his face and besought him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And he put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy departed him. And he charged him to tell no man, but go and show himself to the priest and offer for the cleansing according as Moses had commanded for a testimony unto them. But so much the more went there a fame abroad of him. And great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. And he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. This is one example. I've decided to choose the person of the Lord Jesus an example of when the Lord or an individual in the scripture decides to separate themselves from others by going into the wilderness. Notice two things. First of all, this is a separation from something and it's a separation to something. Now you might say, well, why would you leave all those thronging crowds? I mean, isn't this kind of a good thing? In one way, it can be, of course, in spiritual activity. But the Lord had to be had, wanted to be away from those crowds. And so he, 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 didn't come, he, he didn't want to be with them, and so he withdraws and he separates himself from something. But he doesn't separate himself, if you will, into a void. You might think that a wilderness is a bit of a void, as we've been saying. But he didn't want to go to the wilderness to just you know, get a, a wilderness spa experience. right? He separated, withdrew himself to pray. So he was bringing himself if you will, into closer fellowship with his father. Now, of course, the fellowship between the father and son was never interrupted. But he's teaching us here, isn't he? And I'd like to think about this as the concept, the beautiful verse that tells us, come out from among them and be separate. Because I think that often gets, if you will, misunderstood. We commented a little bit about it last night, that the Lord isn't really calling us out to be odd or weird or different. And this is a very fine line, of course, because one person's definition of odd is not the other person's definition of odd. So I think the point that I'm trying to make is that the Lord doesn't want us to, to just be different for the sake of being different. You see that, don't you? People who just want to behave in a different manner to just stand out from the crowd. That's not the way the Lord Jesus functions. We know that the Lord Jesus was separate because he indeed was, as the scripture says it clearly, separate from sinners. He was distinct of sin. He could not sin. There was nothing in him to respond to sin. He was vastly different than us. He was the root out of a dry ground. And although we don't have that in same inherent nature, he now gives us a new one. And we, despite not having lost the old one, seek to be separate from the world. Well, what is the world? What is it that we want to separate ourselves from? Because we're clearly not saying, let's go build a convent up here on that beautiful mountain that I saw this morning and just all parade up there and forget the world. There's some believers who almost effectively do that because they've so withdrawn themselves from any contact with the world that they may as well be nested in a convent somewhere. So what is it that we're separating ourselves from? Well, the world, of course, as we heard a little bit from Joe last night, the enemies that we face, the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
I always like the way Bill McDonald uh, briefly described the world. He said, the world is that place that seeks to be happy without Christ. It's a system. It's a way of thinking. It's a machinery that is incredibly powerful and intricate. And the challenge is, of course, that sin has so tainted the world. There are great things that happen in this world. And I think sometimes as believers, we can paint the world so black and white. And yes, in one way, as I like to say, there are two people on the planet. You're either saved or lost. We use the word unsaved. I'm not saying you can't use it, but it's not biblical. You won't find the word unsaved in the scripture. It kind of softens the blow. People are either saved or lost. So in one way, yes, we could think of everybody on the planet as being divided into two groups. But the world, as it were, is not a completely horrible place. You know, when, when you hear about what was happening in the time uh, of Noah before the, the devastation came, you know, you're saying, what were they doing? Can you believe it? They were, they were marrying. You know, they were eating. <gasps> As if eating is bad, right? I mean, in about 12 minutes from now, I don't know about you, but I'm planning to eat, right? It's not so much that they were everything that they did. Yes, the thoughts of their intents and the intents of their heart, we know, were constantly evil. It's not so much just the pure deeds that they did. And of course, it was the motivation behind them. It was trying to marry and give in marriage and live life independent of God. That's what the world wants. That's the world system that we separate ourselves from. The world had, has good things in it. The world does tremendous charity work, and supports people and helps people and provides education and various things. And so the Lord give us help to know as we negotiate through the waves of life, when it's appropriate to tap into the world and when it's not appropriate to tap into the world. And what might be appropriate for me may be a little bit different than you. This is, I think, something we don't speak about enough. This, this sense of discretion, of discernment that the Lord wants us to have. To know when to say yes and when to say no. When we can use, if you will, the resources of the world and when we should not. The Lord gives us beautiful examples of this in the scripture. Daniel's one of my favorite. Daniel said, okay, I will serve in this pagan empire. I will do this. I'll have a boss that is, you think you've got a tough boss. <laughs> but there were lines that they drew. And they said, when he said, I'm not going to eat that meat. I'll go to University of Babylon, right? Or as I sometimes call it, BU, Babylon U. Yeah? So I had like little sweatshirts, BU, you know? I don't know what their nickname would have been, but they said, we're, we're, I'm willing to go to BU. I'll even attend, you know, the, uh, the games. I'll support the team. I'll go to the classes. I'll study. But I am not eating that meat that was offered to idols. That's where I draw the line. So you, in your school, in your workplace, in your community, you say, I'm, I'm more than willing to be here and to work in this context and to support my, my boss and, and to, to, to tow the company line. However, you know, this thing that's just come up, I can't do that. I'm not going to be dishonest in our billing. 
I'm not going to participate in that event because that would shame the name of my Lord Jesus. Do you see what separation is about? Oh, that is where we need the help of the Word of God. The Word of God is that two-edged sword that can so carefully, I love the way the Scripture describes itself, that can so carefully distinguish between the joint and the marrow. It's not a big cleaver that just comes and hacks. This is a fine, surgical, precision instrument that in that given day that you're living, you come to the Lord and say, Lord, is this something I should do or not do? Remember how I asked you last night? Prove to me how dependent you are on God. This is where you prove your dependence on God. Lord, help me to be as wise as a serpent, but as harmless a dove. Help me to maintain my testimony in my workplace, in my area, wherever it is that the Lord places me, but also have me to know that there are lines that have to be drawn, and I'm not going to do it. So how do you get that? How do you get that training? How do you, how do you, uh, how do you master that? Well, I don't think anyone's fully mastered it. Lord Jesus is the one who could sit with the sinful and not be tainted by it. You and I, well, pragmatically, this is how I try to think about it. First thing I think in my mind is saying, well, first thing I want to know is that the Christian is designed to be in the world. I take comfort in that. If you think of the, the Christian as a, as, a, as, a, as a tool, this is a tool that was designed to be in the world. Sometimes we think that the Christians are meant to, we get saved and then... As they say, we go off to the convent and no one sees us anymore. No. Be reassured that the Lord has built you. We heard about some of the armor last night. Now, you can't help it if the soldier has the right armor and doesn't use it. That's the problem. But be assured that you are designed to be in the world. The analogy that some have used, which I think is appropriate, is it's like we're little ships gone off into the water. We're designed to be in the water. We're ships. The problem isn't that the ship is in the water. The problem is when the water gets in the ship. So know that you're designed to understand those tools that you have at your disposal. The armor of God. As we heard last night, some are defensive, some are offensive. How sad that the Lord fully equips us and we don't use it. tragic, isn't it? Thirdly, be very aware of the fact, and I have to say this carefully, but truthfully, that we are going to have some water splash in the boat. That doesn't mean this ship is going to sink. We need a little bailing can, if you will, of prayer to get that water out, and we need help. It's not as if you, you come to trust in Christ and the ship goes out and that's it. We're, we're, you're out, in, out in, the, in the depths of the water and you're left alone. No, we have a support. This is a beautiful example of that support. Because on a regular basis, the ship comes back into port. Clean it up. Strengthen that ship for your next journey out. And I think that's why the Lord has grounded us. He grounds us on a weekly basis by remembering him. 
He grounds us on a regular basis of meeting with the Lord's people. What we're doing today is biblical. Gathering together in the Lord's name. Reading the word of God. Studying it. Encouraging each other. Building each other. Eating lunch together. I'll argue that's biblical. Strengthen each other as we go through. Can you think of your, your little ship, your little yacht? I had to, uh, it was interesting that we found out yesterday that, that, that Joe and Ann had been in San Diego, and so I was in San Diego yesterday morning. I had to give a, t- a talk there in downtown San Diego, and I got up early in the morning for my usual run, and I don't know if I've ever seen as large a yacht as they have there. That, those are some pretty impressive things. I know nothing really about boats. But it struck me, uh, in knowing that I was going to give this message, that there was one of the really small ones and although it was quite early in the morning, there's a whole crew of people working, cleaning up that boat, getting it ready. And I thought that's exactly what I hope happens this weekend here. Your little ships have been out in the water this week. Some of you have had some good catches for God. Other of you are coming back empty. But you all need a little maintenance, a little clean, a little strengthening. May God help us to do it right here. Here in the wilderness, where we come out from among them and be separate. So that when you go back, you know how to negotiate that curve. When you go back to school this week or you go back to work this week, you know there's that thing that I can do and that thing that I shouldn't do. And the Lord help us to know those. And the only way we're going to know is if we're in constant and regular contact with the Lord. Well, we've only covered two of our, of our features We didn't get a chance to get to Revelation, but that's fine. We'll talk a little bit about how the desert is a place of revelation this afternoon. But as we close off this morning, really think with me, would you? Even over the course of the lunch period, think of how as you're interacting with your brothers and sisters here, how am I helping your boat? How am I helping repair your ship and strengthen your ship? Because, you know, sometimes the challenge is it stays in the harbor. And it doesn't really get out. Or maybe it takes a tiny little jaunt out through the harbor and comes back to dock. Let me tell you and remind you that there are uncharted waters. Desperate people in the world who so need the Lord Jesus. And so need your influence. It's wonderful to gather here. It's great. We need that. But remember, this is the preparation for what we go out to do. Lord, help us to do that today. Let's, uh, let's close in prayer and let's give thanks for the lunch that's prepared for us. Father, we're grateful to be here today. We know it is just a blessing. It's a privilege to meet with the Lord's people. We know that any gathering of the Lord's people in this kind of capacity is going to be a blessing. Just knowing that we're in the same room together, knowing we share the same Lord Jesus, strengthens us for the journey. Father, help us as we study these concepts of the desert to appreciate the need for us to be alone with God, to take time where the distractions are set aside and we're alone with him. Father, we think and we're thankful for the example of our Lord Jesus who separated himself from the crowds to come to pray. Well, Father, we've come here today to pray. We've come here today to be built up, to be strengthened, to be nourished. Strengthen us, we pray spiritually, that as a group and individuals, we can do a great work for God. Father, we're so thankful for those who have worked so hard in preparing this meal for us. We pray that it won't just be good food for us, but it will be an opportunity for us to fellowship together and build each other up in the faith. And we pray that we 
be brought back here in a little over an hour to continue our studies together. Again, we're thankful. We know all good things come from our Father, and we're thankful to him today in his precious name.